So this year includes a sermon series, Walking Through the Book of Joshua, which we've not walked very far, and I promise we really will get to Joshua and through Joshua. Losing one Sunday due to the weather put us a little bit behind, but reconfigured, and we'll make it the way through. But along with the sermon series on the book of Joshua, we're also doing a concurrent sermon series on the whole counsel of God. And that phrase, the whole counsel of God, comes from Acts 20, verse 27, that we're going to look at this morning. Appropriate on a day in which we will ordain a new ruling elder and appropriate as a congregation as we read through the Bible together in order to understand how the Bible fits together. Acts chapter 20 is a huge piece to that puzzle. And so before we read, let's go before the author in prayer. Let's pray together. Our God, as we have worshiped in song, we now worship in study. Glad to know you as the God of revelation, who is pleased to reveal yourself that you might be known. Cause us to know you. Cause us to hear your voice by sending your Holy Spirit now to bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word that we might receive it for what it is, your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning, I'm going to focus especially on Acts 20, verses 27 and 28, but always good to put Scripture within a context that we might not pull something out of context uh, and force it to say something it does not really say. And I kept expanding the context more and more because uh, it's important to see all of that. So we're going to go all the way back, actually, to start at verse 17, because this is Paul's only speech in the book of Acts that is addressed to Christians. All the other speeches throughout Acts are evangelistic. Uh, spoken to unbelievers, including speeches in defense before kings and courts and councils and people from all walks of life. But here in chapter 20, Paul calls together the elders of the church of Ephesus in order to tell them this. So listen to God's word from Acts 20, beginning at verse 17. It was from Miletus that Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. 
Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So again, focusing in on verse 27, where the NIV translates it, the whole will of God, but elsewhere it is referred to as the whole counsel of God. And so that is the most familiar phrase. So Paul shared the whole counsel of God in Ephesus for what he says is three years. It is actually two years and three months, according to chapter 19. If you flip back a page uh, or two to 19, verses 8 through 10, you'll see that uh, Paul would go into the synagogue, as he often did when he first came into an area, and he spoke there for three months, arguing about the kingdom of God, but some became obstinate and refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them uh, and then began to have public discussions in the Uh, the public lecture hall, and did this for some two years. So he rounds that up to three years, or to say that it was, he was in his third year of doing this ministry in Ephesus. But all that is to really ask the question, how is it possible that Paul could proclaim the whole counsel of God in three years or less? They did not have the time or certainly the resources to get together for Bible study and expository Bible study and go through the Bible together word by word. They did not own Bibles. And what we know as the New Testament was still being written. We're not told anything about the details of the methodology of how Paul proclaimed the whole whole counsel of God, but simply that that is exactly what he did. And yet he also doesn't say, whew, now that's done. You've got the whole counsel of God, so pretty much done here. I guess you guys have nothing else to do, so, you know, have a nice life. See you in the afterlife. It isn't that either. What he's doing in this passage is encouraging the elders to go and do what he has done. That is to say that there are times in Scripture that we read something that is simply descriptive as opposed to prescriptive, or to say it's something that is reported but not recommended, as we're Uh, reading through the Old Testament together, and in the uh, class that's reading through that together and walking through, we talk about all those things that happen in the Old Testament that are reported that Israel did, uh, that the patriarchs did. They're reported as these pretty egregious activities. It's reported that that happened, but not recommended. Polygamy that ran uh, among, uh, among them, but certainly not something that's recommended, simply reported. But here, distinct from that, Paul is not just describing what he did or reporting what he did, but is 
forwarding that to the elders. He expects them to follow his example. He taught the whole counsel of God to the elders so that they might continually do the same thing for the church and in the community as Paul now moves on. And so that begs the question for us, is this our main expectation for our elders? When we think about our elders, when we think about the elders of the church, is the first thing that comes to mind is, I sure hope that they are teaching us the whole counsel of God. Now to look at that, I want to do some of the nomenclature here, because there's three terms that get used interchangeably. At the beginning, they are called elders, which is the title of the office. The Greek word for elder is presbyteros, from which we get that strange word presbyterian. What a strange group we are that we identify ourselves by our form of government. But that's exactly who we are. We are the Presbyterian church. We are led by the elders, that office of elder. That's the title of the office. But then in verse 28, they are told to be overseers. And the Greek word there is where we get the word episkopos, episcopal. And so there is an episcopal, a bishoping, an overseeing ministry that is to take place that the elders are to do. The elders are to be bishops. The elders are to be overseers. And then more than that, they're not only called to be overseers, but to be shepherds of the church. And the word shepherd in Latin is where we get the word pastor. The pastor is to bring the flock into the pasture. He is to pasture them to make sure that the flock is fed and cared for guarded, protected. But that's not a job just for the pastor, but for the elders. All of the elders of the church are to be overseeing and pastoring the flock. And so the main function of the pastor and the elders is not to be program directors or meeting facilitators or even parish visitors. When Paul went house to house, it was in order to teach And the consistency with what he taught publicly, he also taught privately. And the continuity of those things. So as we kind of hone in now on those two verses, verses 27 and 28, do so thinking about what we've seen already so far this year. We started this year in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, in which God tells Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. We meditate on God's word continually, not just so we can feed our mind and say, look how much I know, but so that it would be lived out, that we'll be careful to do what's written in it. And God says, if you do that, then you'll be prosperous and successful. Not in a prosperity gospel manner, but to say that you will be successful and prosperous in exactly what I've commanded you to do. And that is still the case for us. And so we meditate on all of God's word so that we might be successful in living it out in real life. We then also looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, not just our favorite verses, not just the verses we understand, not just the verses that we come back to time and time again, but also the stuff that we don't yet understand. Those difficult parts, the parts that kind of the pages stick together because we don't read those parts quite as often. That is also God-breathed word. And so God wants us to understand the whole counsel because it's all from God. 
And then last week, we looked at Psalm 119, verse 11. I have hidden your word, or I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, when we let God's word invade our very hearts, it changes the way in which we live. So the whole counsel of God, how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you teach the whole counsel of God? It isn't simply, okay, I read through the Bible, because as we all have realized in our own walks, we have times in which we read the Bible and go, I didn't understand that at all. So Paul isn't just saying, read your Bible and that should do it. He's trying to teach the whole counsel. So how, how do you do that? How do you formulate a plan by which to present the whole counsel of God? Well, there's lots of different formats that the church has done over the years. Uh, there's what's known as uh, a biblical theology, which is the, uh, uh, a way of formulating things so that you see this sort of progressive unfolding of God's revelation throughout history. And then there's systematic theology, which is a thematic ordering of all that the Bible teaches. There's historical theology of the development of biblical and theological understanding as it's taken place throughout the life of God's people. There's also what's known as missiological theology. It's the understanding of God's word as it's applied to our fulfilling of the Great Commission together. And then there's, of course, practical theology, that we're not only to have right doctrine, but the right practice, the right living of, our, of what God has revealed. So how do you teach, proclaim, and live out the whole counsel of God? Well, Richard Gamble, who is a professor down in Pittsburgh at the RPTS, has completed two of three volumes. Um, the third is due out in the next year or so. That's entitled The Whole Counsel of God. And if you look at a Bible that's about this thick, well, here's volume one. That's at least that and then some, right? And this is just the Old Testament. God's mighty acts in the Old Testament. So he's got that done. And then this one's even bigger, volume two, the full revelation of God in which he's especially focusing on what's revealed in the New Testament. And then a third volume is going to come out in which he talks about the church's theological development of the Bible's teaching throughout the centuries. So it's to take what God has revealed, but then it's to teach the whole counsel of God. And these are big books with a third volume to go. And that's just his take on this. There's lots of them, right? But in fact, when you get to John's gospel, the last words of John's gospel, he says, there are many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so part of this is not just, again, a head knowledge or reading so much that you fill that up, but it's an understanding, a comprehending of the fullness of the counsel that God has revealed. Now, doing the whole counsel is also to distinguish from having gaps or focusing on one part so much that you neglect other parts. Because we all have our favorite theologies, right? Our favorite aspects of the Christian faith. And we want to spend our time talking about those things. In fact, we talk about certain things so much that we neglect the rest. It might be that we are... Uh, we think biblical literacy is important, and so that becomes such a focal point that we forget about other parts. Others that creationism is their thing, and so they spend all their time thinking about that. Others who talk about the kingdom, uh, vocational callings, end time views. 
And then, of course, many of us in the Reformed faith have gone through that period of time where we turn every conversation into a conversation about God's sovereignty, especially predestination. And then lots of people who want to talk about social justice, and that's all we talk, social justice, or we talk about uh, political issues, or talk about whatever pop culture question is being asked right now. People that focus on Sabbath or on worship, mission, evangelism, salvation, or want to talk about anything except for those things. And so topical preaching becomes also uh, a fad, such that people will gather around a pastor to talk about topics of interest, none of which is looking at the whole counsel of God, which is what it is that we're called to do. Now think about some of the other phrases that Paul uses throughout this passage to describe what it is that he's doing. In verse 20, he says that he taught anything that would be helpful. So part of what it means to teach the whole council is teaching what is helpful. Verse 21, it was a declaration that all must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So the whole council has to involve a call for repentance. And then he also says he's gone about the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The whole council of God has to be about God's grace. And then he's gone about preaching the kingdom. And so the kingdom is a part of the whole council. All this connected with also how he himself lived. He can't say, I taught you the whole counsel of God, but certainly didn't live that out in my life, did I? He says, no, you saw in my life a reflection of the very things that I taught to you and see the connection between what I taught and how I lived. And then he connects that to the charge to the elders. This is what you are now supposed to do. Now, that's tough. It is difficult to communicate the whole council to all the people. Our kids got together, about uh, 30-some kids yesterday, and uh, parents and adults, for Legomania. Legomania happened right here, and one of the tasks that the kids did was trying to take eight pieces of a Lego and to try and duplicate that. And so you had one group that knew what the one Lego looked like in this eight-piece building that they'd done, and to communicate that with words, but you couldn't show it, but communicate with words how this other group was supposed to build that same thing. And the kids will tell you just eight pieces and how incredibly difficult it was, right? Look at the kids out there going, that was hard. And it was just eight Lego pieces. Just try to communicate how you take these eight Lego pieces and make it look the same over here. And that's just Lego. How do you take the whole counsel of God and communicate that so that everybody understands together what it is? Because it's not just Paul who's communicating the whole counsel of God. God is communicating the whole counsel of God. It is God who wants us to know what he has revealed and to understand it and to live it out. That takes a while to get it. And we have this wonderful time in human history that we have such access to all of God's revealed word. We can, we can hold it in our hands. We've got applications that we can, take any, we can take the Bible anywhere and everywhere. And yet we have so many people who say, no, I'm not really interested in reading the Bible, thanks. Do I have to read this? In past history and even contemporary history around the world, there are people who have died and do die for possessing God's word, for having it, for reading it, for distributing it. Places it's still illegal to distribute Bibles. And here we have it in abundance, and yet people who don't want to read it. So the problem may not be the Bible. Where people say, oh, the Bible's just boring. 
No. It's, it's a lot of things, but it isn't boring. So that takes us to verse 28 and the shepherding ministry of the church. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And the most excellent exposition and application of that verse is given in Richard Baxter's classic work, The Reformed Pastor. The book has three chapters, the oversight of ourselves, the oversight of the flock, application. Elders must keep watch over themselves, for we are also sheep, prone to wandering in our sinful nature, but we're also charged with keeping watch over the flock. And then the full application of that. And shepherding would be easy if we all weren't prone to wander, right? If all the sheep contentedly and joyfully moved in the same direction together to green pasture on the other side of the hill, uh, just walking together and all agreeing, then it would be really simple, but that's not how we work, is it? The nature of sheep is given in so many other passages. Matthew 18, uh, the lost sheep was wandered so that the shepherd must go and look. And by the time he gets back, two more have gone wandering. Shepherding is made more difficult for two additional reasons that Paul gives here. First, in verse 29, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so a significant part of shepherding, of pastoring, is dealing with the savage, fierce, grievous wolves that continually attack the flock. These are people and forces, voices outside the church that attack, worldly influences, outright evil elements that seek to destroy the faith and the life of Christians in the church, to keep us from being the church together, to hear and receive and live out the whole counsel. The second reason that shepherding is difficult is even more insidious, verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In fact, Richard Baxter describes four groups that need to be shepherded. First, the weak, who are perhaps new to the faith or facing difficult circumstances and are wounded. Second, the strong, who need continued encouragement. Three, the backslidden, who have wandered and need to be restored. And then fourth, those who labor under a particular sin that makes them harmful to themselves and others. Frequently, it's the sin of pride. And so much of pastoring, eldering, is dealing with those who are difficult and burdensome, who are harmful to the flock, some who may be wolves in sheep's clothing, some who are just extra difficult. Wolves are wolves by nature. Attacking sheep is part of their nature. Likewise, those who are loaded with pride, who think they are right and think that what they think is right and everyone needs to do what they want, makes it difficult. Often church discipline is necessary probably the hardest and most time-consuming, exhausting demands of pastoring and eldering. So why do we do it? Why do we put ourselves in such harm's way, standing between the flock and those who would attack the flock? Because of what verse 28 concludes with. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Jesus has bought the flock with his own blood. We are called to shepherd those who are bought by the blood of Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, and the elders are simply the under-shepherds to serve the good shepherd. The apostle Paul faced prison and hardships, being falsely accused, 
but did this for Christ's sheep. And so Paul then closes with that great encouragement in verse 32. I commit you to God, to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We cannot do anything apart from God in the word of his grace. Or positively stated, even the impossible becomes possible by God in the word of his grace. All who receive Jesus Christ receive the internal inheritance. We who are sanctified and continue to be sanctified, growing in faith and repentance, do so by the work of God and the word of his grace. And so it is that we are called to receive the whole counsel of God as it is taught, and then to live it out together, to encourage one another, to do this not only within the church, but to go into all the world with the whole counsel of God, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. And he is with us until the end. And it is God's grace that builds us up so that we can help the weak. It is God's grace that builds us up so that we can give rather than receive. It is God's grace that builds us up so that we can build others up by sharing with them God and the word of his grace. Indeed, may God's grace build us up that we might teach, receive, and share the whole counsel of God. And may the truth set us all free. Amen.